Hey everyone, it's Kayla. I'm just dropping in to let you all know that our amazing editor Jenna is experiencing some laptop issues this week, so we don't have a fresh episode for you. But that means I'm going to pick out an episode from our archives, one of our more popular episodes that I think is worth revisiting for you all to listen to today. This means that today we're going to be listening to a day in the life of a conservation dog handler. This goes through my schedule um, on a typical day working on the wind farms, which is not the only way to be a conservation dog handler, but it's the episode we have, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back next week with a nice fresh episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week as we discuss odor dynamics and conservation biology and all sorts of incredible things related to the world of conservation detection dogs. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. And I am recording right now from my field truck. So again, sorry for um, subpar audio quality. Um, it is 5.45 in the morning. Um, this is the latest morning I've had all week. And I wanted to do a little bit of a bonus mini-sode about a day in the life of a conservation detection dog handler. So we're going to start out going through a day in the life of the project I'm currently working on. And if we've got time, um, I'll go over a couple of the other projects that I've worked on because it, it does vary, very so much. Um, it does vary, very so much. I was trying to use both varies in the same sentence there because I thought it would be poetic and it just sounded awkward. Anyway, okay, so I am currently working on wind farm projects. So I am working with Niffler, my nine-month-old puppy. I'm going to do an episode very soon about, um, you know, my decision to work with an adolescent dog and um, some of the things I've been keeping in mind as I've been working with a very young dog. Um, my older dog Barley, King Barley, is away at another field site right now doing the same work with one of my very good friends who's an aspiring conservation detection dog handler. I guess she now is. She's made it. Um, I was able to uh, lend her my dog, um, lend her Barley. Um, so, okay, so we're working on wind farms, um, which means the dogs are, um, they're trained to detect bats. And then if we find birds, incidentally, we're also keeping track of those, although the dogs were not kind of specifically intentionally trained on birds which is just a study design choice um and where we're at right now i can't tell you the specific wind farm or you know specific town or anything like that um but it has been very hot and humid um i'm recording this on july 30th and this week i think every day we had highs in or around the 90s it's been extremely humid luckily it has been windy obviously because we're on a wind farm but the reason i'm mentioning the weather is that is the biggest informer of how early we are starting every morning so my days um this week have been starting around 4:45 in the morning with my alarm i've been getting up i've been brushing my teeth putting on my field clothes and basically leaving. I've been getting in the truck to go to work by about 5 a.m. Um, because I'm not ready for breakfast yet. Niffler's not ready for breakfast and there's not really anything else to do, um, which I've just been setting up my truck and everything so that I'm able to leave right away at 5 a.m. 
Um, it's about a half hour commute to our work site. So by the time we're getting there around 5.30 in the morning, um, it's starting to get light out. It is The sun hasn't quite crested the horizon, um, but it's light enough to work. Um, and that's a safety thing. We're not allowed to be on the wind farms uh, and out of the vehicles in the dark. Um, but once it's light out, we're basically trying to get out and start working with the dogs as early as possible because the dogs are, even with all our fancy rough wear cooling gear and water and everything that we can possibly do, um, the dogs are getting really hot and the dogs don't work as well once they're hot because obviously if they're panting with, you know, a big gaping open mouth pant, uh, their mouth breathing, <laughs> they're not going to be able to scent quite as well. And it's also obviously just a comfort and safety thing. We want the dogs to be safe and we want the dogs to enjoy the job. So, been starting around 5.30 in the morning, and what this particular um, wind farm project looks like, and I assume most wind farm projects are broadly very similar, is we basically have a list of turbines that we're going to check every day, and we go from turbine to turbine, surveying the area under the turbine looking for our fatalities. Um, and there's a huge, huge team behind us that is doing all sorts of data analysis and looking at, um, you know, looking, I don't actually even know, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, my, my dog trainer is showing, uh, and my conservation biologist is uh, a little ashamed right now. I don't know much more about the study of design. Um, but you know, we're just kind of the hired guns who come up and show up and look for the fatalities. And then there's all sorts of, um, GIS people and, um, scientists and, uh, statisticians and, and other people who have done pre-field work, you know, before construction of the wind farm or, you know, in previous years, um, and they're combining all that data together to look at the environmental impact or the uh, wildlife impact of these, these farms, of these turbines. Um, each turbine search is taking us 15 to 30 minutes. Um, it kind of depends on how hard the wind is blowing um, because that can make our scent cones um, longer and narrower. We were having yesterday, it was quite windy and it was quite a bit cooler. It was just in the 80s. Um, and Niffler was having detection distances with his um, uh, for his fatalities of around 50 feet. Um, so we were working really, really quickly because we weren't really having to walk really, really tight transects because as long as our transects were 50, 60 feet apart, Niffler was able to pick up every single fatality as far as I can tell. Obviously, I don't know the ones we miss. Um, when he finds his fatalities, when he finds his casualties, we're able to reward the dogs. Um, Niffler is currently getting a mix of ball and toy rewards or ball and food rewards. Um, I mark it with a pin flag, I mark it with my GPS, and I go on to the next one. Um, and we're walking about 20 meter transects. As I said, um, I've actually been walking tighter transects because my dogs work fast, um, but they also um, might miss things because they work so fast. So I've actually been walking closer to 15 or 20 meter transects, but I'm actually still getting done in about the same time as the other handlers because their dogs work much more slowly and methodically at these wider transect distances. So, um, once, um, once we've finished our plot, I'm then putting Niffler away in the truck. I'm giving him water. I'm turning the truck back on to run the air conditioning for him. And then I'm going out to process each casualty. And that might look like, um, for this project, I'm taking a bunch of photos. I'm measuring, um, the wings of the bats because that can help with species identification. I'm taking, um, you know, compass measurements and more 
GPS data and all sorts of stuff to really hammer down what exactly I'm seeing, how fresh it is, what species it is, where it is in relation to the turbine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then bag up our casualties. And then, well, and I go to the next one. Um, we've had some turbines um, where we're finding several casualties per turbine. We also have a lot, a lot, a lot of turbines where we don't find anything. Um, but it seems like, you know, as these, as our, um, as our bats are migrating, they, you know, the, the turbines may be hitting several bats in a, in a migrating flock. Um, do bats flock? I know a colony of bats is a group of bats that aren't moving, but I'm actually not sure. <laughs> Birds flock. Is a group of bats a flock? Let me know. Um, I could Google it, but actually I can't because I don't have internet um, where I live right now. So, um, then we load up and we go to the next plot. Um, some of our plots are actually human only plots where I'm just walking on the access road to the turbine, walking around the turbine. Um, there's kind of like a gravel patch under these turbines and then walking back to the truck and um, marking any fatalities I have there. I assume that the scientists are doing something there to kind of confirm or compare efficiency for these really fast, really easy human searches to the more intensive dog searches. Um, I just have to assume that they're just kind of comparing. That's part of the study is that they're looking at different types of searches and how efficient they may be at actually finding um, these casualties maybe the theory being once they really know what and I'm totally speculating here but this is what I might be thinking about if I were writing this study is okay so if we can get dog teams out for a couple seasons and we can get a really good handle on how many um, casualties there are under each turbine because we assume the dog teams are missing far 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 fewer than the human teams are but then at the same time, we can also compare that to what human teams are finding at comparable wind turbines at the same year. Then going forward in the future, um, maybe in other years, we might not use the expense to hire a dog team. Um, and we might be able to just get techs to, um, biology techs to walk those, those roads um, the way that I'm doing right now. And then, you know, we can do some fancy math and kind of extrapolate out to figure out um, what the f casualties are looking like. Again, I don't know if that's what they're doing, but that would be a question that I would be interested in asking. Um, obviously, as a conservation detection dog handler, I'd prefer if they uh, they continue hiring the dog teams. But you know, um, conservation biology doesn't always have a lot of money in it, so I understand if they're uh, they're looking for ways to save some money. Okay, um, and we kind of rinse and repeat that all day. Um, yesterday, Niffler searched about ten turbines. I searched um, alone about five. Um, and we were working from, we were on site at 5 a.m. And then we actually, unfortunately, had some lightning, which slowed us down. We weren't able to start working until about 8.30 in the morning, maybe around 9, um, which was much, much slower. Luckily, because of the storms, um, it actually stayed a little cooler yesterday. But I worked from about 8.30 in the morning until about... 7.45 at night. Um, we were on site from 5 a.m. until 7.45. From 5 a.m. to 8.30 while we were waiting for the lightning to clear, I just was doing some data entry and extra processing from work that I um, had fallen behind on earlier this week. Um, and then once I got home around 8.30 last night, I took a quick shower. I stuffed my face full of... Um, <laughs> this uh, zucchini black bean dish that I've been making because our Airbnb hosts keep giving us uh, zucchini. <laughs> um, 
and then I did some data entry and then I passed out. Um, and that's been relatively standard for me all week um, and the past couple weeks on this project. You know, we've been working again kind of from 5 a.m. till I've had days where I finished at noon. I've had days where I finished at four. I've had days where yesterday I finished at 7.30, 7.45. Um, so they're very, very, very long field days. This project is not all that physically challenging because we are kind of walking you know, flat prairie under wind turbines and you're only walking for maybe a half hour at a time and then you get in the truck and you drive to the next turbine. Um, so it's a lot of driving. It's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of being paid to drive up to a cattle gate, put the truck in park, get out of the truck, open the gate, walk back to the truck, drive through the gate, put the truck back in park, drive back to the gate, close the gate, get back into the truck, and then go on. <laughs> we have some turbines where um, you have to do that four or five times from one turbine to the next. Um, so I feel like sometimes I'm just being paid to be a professional cow gate opener. And um, that's more or less this project. Um, I am in uh, working on this project for about three months. Um, and uh, yeah, two, three months. Uh, I can tell I'm going to be exhausted. Um, I already am exhausted. I'm getting an average of five or six hours of sleep each night because by the time I finish all my data processing, it has often been 9 p.m. and then I need to do a little bit of unwinding before bed um, and then I'm getting up again at 4.45. Um, so that's kind of brutal. Um, but again, this job hasn't been physically challenging and I'm hoping... Um, this week was um, a little unusually challenging for me because I was actually working ahead so that I could um, take a, a little bit of a long weekend. Um, and then we had some weather issues. So, for example, yesterday, I would have been able to wrap up yesterday closer to 4 p.m. had we actually started um, searching at our normal 5 a.m. time. Um, but yeah, that's more or less a day in the life for this um, for this particular project. I guess I will talk about what it looks like when I'm searching a dog plot. Um, so when I'm out with the dogs there, um, the dogs are working on or off leash. It depends on the dog. Um, they prefer that the dogs work on leash, um, but both of my dogs actually work better off leash. Um, I have my GPS in one hand and a bunch of pin flags in the other hand. I have a fanny pack on that carries um, a teeny tiny emergency first aid kit. It carries citronella spray um, in case we were to encounter any off leash aggressive dogs. It carries poop bags, it carries treats, and it carries toys for Niffler. Um, and then there are a couple other kind of emergency things in there. Um, I, have, <laughs> uh, I have a kind of emergency grooming kit that's much more important for Barley because he's a long-haired Border Collie versus Niffler, who's kind of my, uh, my quick-dry version. Um, but I have a teeny tiny folding flea comb. I have tweezers. I have trauma shears. And, um, oh, I have hemostats, which are really helpful for handling um, things if need be. Um, I've, I've used those to deal with cactus spines. I've also used them, which the tweezers are generally better at. Um, I also use them quite frequently for handling samples as I'm processing them. And that's not just on this project. Um, and then I also have a teeny tiny bottle of lube. Um, <laughs> and that is not for me. That is actually because squirting a teeny tiny bit of lube onto things like foxtails and other grass seeds that can be really dangerous if they get into your dog's eyes or ears or nose. Um, 
that lube particularly up their nose can be really helpful in washing those grass seeds out so that they don't um, because those grass seeds will actually kind of spiral and burrow into your dog's flesh um so yes i have lube in my pocket every day all the time while i'm doing conservation dog stuff um there's a joke in there somewhere but it is 5 45 in the morning and i cannot make it Okay, um, so and then you know Niffler is working off leash um, for the most part. Um, I'm putting him on leash if we are near cattle. Um, cattle have been kind of the bane of our existence on this project. Um, sometimes they think that we are driving up to feed them. So I've had several wind turbines where I've driven up to try to get my search started, and I look up as I'm kind of doing my my data entry for um, the fact that I'm about to start the turbine because we have to write down the turbine number, the date, you know, uh, the time that we're we're starting the search. All those things um by the time i've written those things down i look up and the vehicle um, or we've we've got 40 or 100 black angus cattle kind of <laughs> running towards us thinking they're going to be fed um and they're they're not afraid of us um and they're mixed herds in a lot of cases so you know it's mamas with babies it's pregnant mamas and it's bulls um so when that happens we sometimes we can wait them out and they'll just kind of realize we're not going to feed them and then they're going to wander away um and then a lot of times i actually just end up having to drive away and come back to that turbine later which does slow us down quite a bit um sometimes the cows are not interested in being fed and they just kind of are lying around sleeping or whatever in those cases i generally can kind of get out of the truck shoo them away and then i keep niffler on leash because he is a herding dog and i do not need my conservation dog learning that herding cattle is just as much fun as working particularly when i'm expecting him to work alongside cattle and i want him to be able to focus on finding bats not chasing cows um so it's really important for me that he does not practice cow chasing behavior particularly in this context one day i do probably plan on doing herding lessons with him just because i think it's really fun and i think it's really really amazing for dogs off-leash obedience in their relationship with you um but um, I never ever want to mix herding and um, conservation dog work. So, um, so we've got cattle. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. This is such a crazy episode because it is so early in the morning, but I really wanted to record it and I, I have time now. Um, <laughs> and as you've heard, I don't have a lot of time to be recording podcasts right now. Okay, so then um, we get out, we walk up to the upwind side of the turbine and we start walking crossways. So the wind is always kind of at my shoulder, hitting the side of my face. Um, and I am watching Niffler's nose and then glancing back at my GPS. Um, and luckily with this project, there's not a ton of badger holes. We don't have rattlesnakes at this particular study site. So I'm actually um, far less situationally aware, um, or I, I have to be far less situationally aware than normal. Um, and we'll talk about that with some past projects um, coming up soon. Um, I walk all the way across my plot. I turn, I walk downwind, um, as I said, kind of 10 to 15 meters. Um, and then we walk across again and we do that over and over and over again <laughs> until my dog finds bats. Um, and as we said, we have a lot of zero plots where there's nothing to be found. And then we've had some plots where there's, there's more. Um, and it, it, that is really what kind of slows us down each, um, on each project um, or on each plot. Um, the bats uh, and ca casualties take maybe 20 minutes each to process. Um, so if we have a plot where we have multiple casualties, um, that can really slow us down. And that's always really stressful if it's that's starting to happen um, 
you know, around 10 a.m. So like when it's still cool enough that it's really prime dog working conditions and then you're getting slowed down processing these casualties that can be um, stressful. Um, as far as kind of the broader weekly schedule for this particular project, um, as I said, I've been working probably 14 or 15 hour days most days this week. Um, we are supposed to be working four 10 hour days a week. Um, I am grateful for the overtime. Uh, although it has meant that I've had to suspend a lot of my other normal projects. I'm normally someone who kind of has my finger on a lot of different pies and I've had to suspend those, um, which is unfortunate. And part of that is also because our, um, I keep saying Airbnbs, but they're not Airbnbs. They're these little, these adorable little hunting cabins that we're staying at, um, don't have Wi-Fi. So we're using these, um, these signal booster, um, like Wi-Fi puck sort of dealios, but they are capped at 20 gigs of data. And with the amount of photos that we're uploading each day of the um, casualties, we, um, we've burned through that really quickly. So um, I'm working 14, 15 hour days, um, which is kind of a bummer, but quite frankly, I'm in rural Nebraska. I don't know anyone here. Um, I, I don't mind working the really, really long days for this particular project. Although again, I can tell that at the end of this project, I'm going to be exhausted and very excited to, you know, go to coffee shops and hang out with friends and like go for hikes. One of the, the biggest things that is hard for me about this particular project, as far as kind of quality of life, um, is the fact that because we are working so much and it's been so hot, I actually haven't worked out at all this week. Um, I am recording this on Friday. The last time I went for a run was Sunday and that is really unusual for me. I'm normally someone who works out five or six days a week. Um, I am pretty much always either training for a marathon or the American Burger Banner, which is a cross-country ski marathon. So it's really unusual for me to, um, to not be able to work out. Um, I'm also not reading, which is a bummer. I was really excited to um, read a bunch with, and, you know, kind of enjoy my solitude um, this summer. And so far, I've not had time to read. I've not read at all this week. I've barely had time to journal. Most of my journal entries have just been kind of me writing like... I'm tired. Niffler did really well today. Good night. I bid you adieu. Uh, very dramatic. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we're supposed to be working four tens. We're working more like, uh, I think this week I worked 15 hours Monday, 14 hours Tuesday, eight hours Wednesday. And part of that was because my rental car actually had some issues. So I had to do, um, I had to do quite a bit of extra kind of emergency work on Wednesday, um, to deal with my rental car. 15 hours Thursday, today, Friday, I expect I'll work about five hours. Um, and I worked three hours on Sunday actually before, um, before starting. And I expect to probably work another three hours this coming Sunday. Um, so, you know, work-life balance, not a thing. Um, and that is not unusual for field biologist jobs, um, kind of in general, because when it is the season to work, it is the season to work. Um, I think that there's um, an interesting discussion to be had eventually, hopefully on this podcast, about work-life balance and, um, you know, kind of ethical employment for conservation biologists, for ecologists, and trying not to burn out our techs this way. Um, but there's definitely a balance that needs to be struck between, yes, um, I'm tired. Yes, I'm bummed I haven't gone for a run. Yes, I'm bummed that I'm not sleeping as much as I would like. But I also do understand, you know, the literal reality of when migrations happen and how much work we have to be able to get done um, in order to in order to do that. And it's not like, oh, well, I'll just work 
40 hour weeks all summer and then 40 hour weeks all fall and winter to make up for it like no I uh, you know the 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 migration only happens when migration happens so there's uh there's no ability to say like oh well I could just push this off until November um okay so that's kind of um a day in the life for this particular project um let's circle back to some other projects I've worked on so um one other project I've worked on um, is black-footed ferret work. Um, and that is, the study design for that project is actually quite different. So for that project, we were actually um, staying in hotels for maybe two to six weeks at a time. Um, and again, really, really early mornings, black-footed ferrets um, live in prairie dog towns. And while it doesn't always mean that it's hot, it often means that it's hot. Um, and then there we were actually searching 300 acre plots. So really, really big plots. Um, and we were doing maybe one and a half searches a day. So maybe one 300 acre plot and then a couple hundred acre plots as well. Um, and that was just, again, kind of part of that study design. Um, those 300 acre plots were taking um, King Barley and I five or six hours, um, which is a ton to ask of a working dog. I would not be working Niffler if I were working on that project this summer. There is no way that I would be asking my, my itty bitty nine month old teenage boy to, to be doing that. Um, he just wouldn't be able to. There's I might be able to get him to do it a couple times, but I think he would probably build a lot of bad habits. Um, and I think it would really squash his motivation. Um, you know, let alone the fact that we might not actually be gathering great data and doing a great job for our clients. Um, I'm just not willing to risk my dog's motivation, enthusiasm, and skill um, for a project. But Barley was able to do it well. So that project. You're working in scrub. It's kind of deserty, scrubby sort of stuff. Um, and that's true. I've done um, black-footed ferret projects in Montana and Arizona. Um, and black-footed ferrets are these little, these little uh, weaselly things. So they're mustelids. Um, they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly endangered, uh, endangered. There's kind of between 300 and 600 left in the wild right now. Um, they were declared extinct twice <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. Um, and they're, they're, they're not extinct, obviously, but they are in extreme peril. There are really cool captive breeding programs going on. And that's actually quite a bit of the work that we were doing was actually monitoring those captive, the um, the individuals that had been released from those captive breeding programs to see how they were doing out in the wild and see if they were surviving or not, where they had um, emigrated to, if they were moving around, etc. So... And they live in prairie dog towns. Prairie dogs are their their main sneaky snack. So um, the the uh, black-footed ferrets are in these prairie dog towns. So that means um, you are searching in an incredibly high distraction environment for the dogs. Um, so Barley was generally working off leash. We are walking 100 meter spacing transects in that job, um, or we were um, obviously not all black-footed ferret projects by law have to be 100 meter spacing but for that particular project we were so i was watching my gps we were walking across the transect then walking 100 meters and then walking across the uh, or across the plot again sorry the the walking of the transect um at some point i'll uh, i'll sketch up kind of what this actually looks like for a visual for those of you who are not familiar with kind of transects and plots and gps and all those sorts of things um and i'll put that in the show notes so i'll, I'll get that up for the show notes for this um this episode. So, um, yeah, we're walking those transects 
and again kind of keeping our eye on the wind for those really really large plots you know as I said there were like 300 acres um, we're trying to work with the wind at our shoulder but because you're out there for five or six hours um, that's not always possible because the wind is shifting so then um, Again, I'm doing very similar things where I'm watching Barley for change of behavior. Um, I'm watching to see if he speeds up, slows down, starts bracketing where his paws are kind of going back and forth and back and forth um, or crabbing or you know walking sideways or any of these other cool kind of body language things that tells me he's caught odor. Um, I'm also keeping an eye out for patches of holes. So because we are walking these kind of 100 meter transects there's a chance uh you obviously are missing things you're obviously not searching every single hole um but because the ferrets live underground what i want the dog to be doing is sniffing as many holes as possible because obviously there's not a whole lot of <laughs> a whole lot of odor coming out of each of these burrows um <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry that was terrible i really didn't intend to do that one um <laughs> and uh but i mean you know being mustelids being weasels um ferrets are quite stinky but still um so i'm then keeping an eye out for patches of holes of burrows so if barley is off 20 meters to my left searching off leash he's doing a great job he's beautiful he's perfect we love him um and then i look over to my right and i see like 10 burrows that he obviously hasn't searched and especially depending on the wind patterns there's a very good chance he hasn't got any odor from them i will actually call him over ask him to check here that's a cue he's learned um and then we move on. And I actually try to do that quite frequently because I really want him to know that just because I'm asking him to check something does not mean he's going to find something. When we first started teaching him that check here cue, um, he's just, he would like sniff the hole and then alert um, because he just kind of like, oh, well, you told me about it. So there must be something here. And like, obviously that's not helpful. Um, and so super early mornings, getting out, doing these really, really, really long searches. It is, um, it, it is a special dog that is able to do black-footed ferret work. Um, I honestly kind of hope I never do black-footed ferret work again because of the next thing I'm going to mention, which is the fact that because, so black-footed ferrets are nocturnal, solitary, and they live underground, um, they're subterranean, which makes it incredibly difficult to know whether or not your dog is correct when your dog is alerting to a burrow. Sometimes the ferrets will actually chatter at you and you can actually hear them because they're pissed that your dog just stuck his nose down their burrow. And then you can obviously reward the dog. That's great, that's awesome. Um, but then there are other times where you're not sure. Um, some of the projects I've worked on, they have had some radio collared ferrets. So if um, the radio collar crew or spotlight crews that were out in the middle of the night, the night before looking for ferrets, mark where they saw a ferret, you know, at 4 or 5 a.m. And then my dog is alerting to a burrow very nearby at 7 a.m. There's a very, very good chance that my dog is correct. And we will then, um, as long as that information has been relayed to us appropriately, and I can see on my GPS that my dog is, you know, a couple burrows away from where a ferret was last seen just a couple hours ago. I will reward my dog in that case. But in, um, you know, the study design in the black-footed ferrets I've worked on in the past say that if you are not right in that area, if you do not know that a ferret was there a couple hours ago, and if the ferret does not chatter at you, you do not reward the dog, which is incredibly, incredibly challenging because these dogs are working five or six hours, 100-acre plot, or, you know, 300-acre plots, um, they're hot, they're tired, they might be correct. And study design protocol in the past when I've worked on these projects has said, do not reward the dogs if you cannot confirm. Um, we will do an episode at some point about, 
you know, the pros and cons of that approach, um, because that is obviously really challenging for the dogs. We saw a lot of dogs demotivating over the course of those projects, um, not wanting to work much anymore, starting to false alert, starting to pick other things, um, or stopping alerting altogether and really just kind of not working um, and doing what we would call crittering, where they're actually just looking for bunnies instead, because of course they would. Why would they wor work so hard to find these darn ferrets if we're not going to give them their ball when they find the ferrets? So, you know, seems obvious. Um, I would do the same thing. <laughs> if you were walking me around a county fair and uh, really, really wanted me to find, I don't know, every single red-headed child at the, at the county fair, um, but then you didn't give me any sort of reward when I found those redheaded children because you were colorblind and you didn't know. I know colorblind people can see hair color, but let's say that you're completely colorblind. You can't tell a blonde person from a green haired person from a redhead. Um, and you were like, well, I don't really know if you're correct, so I'm not gonna reward you. I'm not really going to keep looking. And um, so anyway, so um, the other thing that is interesting with that project, um, with the ferrets, is that um, prairie dogs do tend to cohabitate with snakes, um, badgers. There are um, quite a few more environmental um, hazards that I'm keeping an eye on for myself as well as for my dog. You know, I don't want to step on a rattlesnake. I don't want Barley to step on a rattlesnake. I don't want to fall down a badger hole and break my ankle. I don't want Barley to fall down a badger hole and break his, uh, his toe, uh, his wrist. Um, I guess dogs have ankles. You only ever talk about their hips and knees, but they must have an ankle. <laughs> um, and again, then that project, we tended to be done by noon. Um, so they were much shorter days than the project I'm currently working on. But part of that is because it's not as seasonal of a project. Blackfoot ferrets obviously exist year round. And, you know, we're not monitoring like a migration or anything. Um, and then once we get back to the hotel room, I often, um, in my previous job, had more than one dog that I was caring for. So then at that point, I was taking care of the other dog that maybe hadn't worked that day. Um, and then in that project, I did tend to have time to get a workout in. Um, and then I was doing data entry. And my job um, in the past was quite a bit more varied. I wasn't just a field tech. So I then also was catching up on other parts of my job, like... Um, working with reporters, um, talking to other researchers about potential future projects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so still working really, really long days, but a little bit more of a mix of, you know, being in the field for maybe seven hours a day and then um, working from the hotel room um, on our computers in the evening. Hey, everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. 
So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists. Or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. And that is more or less um, kind of a day in the life with the um, that black-footed ferret project. I think... Um, you know, it's important. Oh, oh, we'll do one more project. Um, well, maybe two more. Um, so the next project, this is actually the very first project that Barley and I ever worked on, um, was zebra muscle work. And this is really interesting work, um, in a lot of ways. Um, the dogs, I think can find it really boring, but I actually loved it. So zebra muscles for that particular project, what we were doing is we were showing up to boat launches, um, at national parks or at fishing tournaments, those sorts of things, showing up and, um, searching each boat as they were getting their launch permit. Each search took about two, two, three minutes, um, kind of depending on the type of boat, obviously a big pontoon or a jet ski with all sorts of complicated jets and tubing and all sorts of things may take longer than, you know, like a canoe um, is very fast for the dogs to search. Um, and so still relatively early mornings, but not quite as early because you're not dealing with heat as much because each search is so short um, and you're able to kind of rest in the shade while you wait for the next boat to show. Um, so, you know, still early mornings. I think I was tending to work, you know, maybe 6 a.m. there instead of 5 a.m. Um, and that hour, holy cow, guys, that hour makes a big difference. Okay, so then we're working maybe 6 a.m. to noon or so because the reality is most people aren't launching boats after noon. Um, and then, so the dog teams might go home and the normal aquatic invasive species investi- uh, inspectors may stick around all day um, in case there are some people who are launching later in the day. Um, and then the dogs are sniffing for zebra mussels, which are these teeny, teeny, tiny, horribly invasive um, mussels. The adults are often smaller than my pinky fingernail. So, um, and I have tiny hands. I'm five foot two. I don't know if you guys know this about me. I'm tiny. Um, <laughs> so uh, teeny, tiny little zebra mussels. Um, obviously the um, uh, the young, uh, I want to, the offspring, I suppose. I. I don't know. The, the little baby, baby baby zebra mussels are much, much smaller. Um, and then they also have a larval veliger stage, um, which there have been studies showing that if trained appropriately, dogs can actually find those veligers, which is incredible because obviously they're microscopic larvae. So there's no chance in heck that people are going to find them if you're doing a visual search of a boat trying to determine whether or not there are zebra mussels on that boat. Okay, so um, we show up. The part of what I love about this job is I am an educator. I'm an extrovert. Oh my gosh, I love this part of the job. I get to talk to the anglers and tell them about my dog and I get to tell them what I'm looking for and most people are actually kind of psyched about it. You can tell they're like initially a little disgruntled to have to stop and get this permit and whatever before they can go launch their boat. And especially sometimes the, you know, they're like, we were just here last week. We don't have zebra mussels on our boat. We haven't been out of the state. Um, so, and part of the reason zebra mussels are so important is they're horrifically invasive. They're really, really nasty. Um, they, um, they also are not currently present in Montana, um, Wyoming and a couple other states. So, you know, sometimes people would get a little irritated with us where they'd be like, well, but 
I haven't been out of the state. I haven't been to Lake Powell, which has just gajillions. Like, probably, if gajillions is a real number, there might be that many zebra mussels in Lake Powell. It's horrifying. Um, you know, they're like, well, anyway, so the anglers sometimes can be a little disgruntled, but then they see Mr. Barley and they see his tongue that is too big for his mouth and his tail is wagging so hard he's hitting himself in the ears and he is coming to search the boat and he's wearing his adorable, adorable, adorable little booties so that he doesn't scratch their boat when he puts his paws up on it to search. And then he searches their boat in like, what, three minutes? And then we give them, and I have, I, uh, I trained Barley to do this. He would give them this little card that said, you've been sniffed with a little bit of info on zebra mussels on it and his face on it. And it was just the cutest thing, you guys. Um, <laughs> I just, oh my gosh. Um, and, and then they would go on their way. Um, and then we would go back to the shade. We would talk to people. We had lots and lots of people, particularly I worked on an amazing project in Yellowstone National Park working on this. Um, we had lots and lots of people who didn't have boats um, who would come up and just talk to us. And then I would get to do demos with barley. So I had these little vials of dead zebra mussels that we had all sorts of fancy permits for. I would go and I would put them on, um, we had a boat that was just sitting in the parking lot so that we could do demos. I would put them on that boat and then I would let barley do a search. Um, to to show off his stuff to the general public and like as you guys may have noticed because i'm running a podcast i love doing education i love bragging about my dogs um so i i love that part of the job and also that job is pretty physically easy that's one of those jobs that i would love to get um contracts for again going forward um particularly as barley ages because it would be such a great project for him to continue doing as some of these other projects start feeling harder for him um, physically. You know, the wind turbine projects, the black-footed ferret projects, both of those projects actually physically aren't that challenging for the dogs. But you know, even as, uh, you know, yeah, it, it might still, even though it's not horribly physically challenging, if there's an injury or as a dog ages um, further, something like these projects might still um, not be uh, something that the dog's capable of, but those zebra mussels, um, do tend to be pretty easy searches um, and they're fast. So that is actually one of the other, only other projects that I've ever worked on that I would consider working Niffler, my teenage dog, on. Um, I, I'm not sure if I would just because of his specific personality because as we've talked about on the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, Niffler can struggle with some stranger danger. Um, so he can be a little nervous of strange people. So I'm not entirely sure if he would actually be up for that project, but for a teenage dog, hypothetically, um, that zebra mussel project may work well, uh, particularly if you're able to do a lot of demos and keep that find rate really, really high. Um, if you're not able to do demos and you're really being rather industrial about it, I wouldn't necessarily work a teenage dog on it because you might search hundreds of boats between each find. So that obviously makes it a lot less fun. All right. Last project that I will talk about, um, kind of a day in the life and I'm actually going to be quite brief on because I haven't actually <laughs> worked on a project like this um, full-time yet so I can't really tell you but many many other conservation detection dog projects are physically much more strenuous they might involve driving out on these crazy four by four roads in the dark 
you get to your site um, and then you might be working off trail in like the mountains of Idaho looking for big cat scat um, or I did I've shadowed a project in the mountains of Costa Rica looking for jaguar scat I've shadowed um, you know Montana's mountains looking for puma scat all of these projects are physically incredibly challenging for both the person and the dog I have personally um, had the experience of falling down um, a mountain and uh, in Costa Rica and as I'm kind of falling and like grabbing a vine to keep myself from tumbling just having the thought of like gosh I really hope this isn't a pit viper um, and it wasn't and I was okay um, but uh, you know ton way more physical uh, way 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 more physically challenging certainly something that um, I'm glad I'm doing now in my 20s um, because I'm not sure if I'm gonna be up for that in you know 30 years um, and um, also quite challenging and scary for the dogs can still be really really long days and again just physically much more challenging because you're often off trail um, or at best following little like game paths or poachers paths um, and uh, there you might not be working transects you're more actually kind of walking uh, a lot of times what we'll do is you start at your your truck you walk out at an angle and then you walk across and then you walk back at an angle so if you guys can uh, if you can imagine kind of a, a triangle um, and that allows you to kind of canvas a little bit of an area search a little bit of an area um, without doing transects because those can be incredibly taxing if you're off trail and having to climb over deadfall and avoid snakes and blah 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 um, but you're also uh, able to get back to your truck relatively easily so um, I hope that is helpful and interesting as far as a day in the life of a conservation dog handler um, I will also say I suppose that um, you know, we're obviously not always in the field. So when I'm not in the field, I do also have days where I basically, I wake up at a normal human time, like 6.30 or 7 a.m. Um, I get up, I brush my teeth. I actually like have a morning routine. I might wash my face. I might put something on my face other than sunscreen. <laughs> um, and then I, for the bulk of my time working for, uh, for conservation detection dog organizations, um, have worked from home so that was actually um one kind of nice thing for me personally um covid wasn't a huge shift as far as working from home other than the fact that i often wasn't working from home 40 hours a week so then i'm doing computer stuff i might be um talking to researchers who are thinking of hiring us i might be talking to um reporters and media about the work that we do i um might be writing blogs i might be working on this podcast um all sorts of things a lot a lot of email a lot of catching up on all of the emails that had just been auto replied to while i was away on field deployment being like oh my gosh i'm so sorry it's been two months but hi <laughs> let's talk about that email that you sent me um you know so that's uh that's a lot of my non-field work time and then we're training the dogs making sure that the dogs are physically fit um and ready to work so that might mean going for runs um i count that as part of my job um massaging the dogs training the dogs on specific scent work training them on directionals and leave it and on buys and all these other cues that help them be really good responsive field partners and that also might include some of that training may include driving around to different places to go do a search in a new area or go meet up with some other trainers to work together um and that honestly is quite a few of the days as well oh one of the other things i do quite a bit of at that time is grant writing um that's another big computer thing that takes up a lot of my time um right now um as well as um just kind of in general 
So it's a very varied job. I would love to hear if you have any further questions about the specifics of kind of a day in the life of a conservation detection dog handler. I do need to go now. I have, um, I've actually been parked at the, uh, at the first cattle gate of my day to go uh, search for these, uh, search for our dead bats. So uh, Niffler and I have to get out. Um, there's some storms rolling in and we uh, we need to get to work before uh, we get shut down by lightning because we obviously don't work under wind turbines when there's lightning. So uh, my name is Kayla Fratt. I run canineconservationists.org. You can support the work we do over at Canine Conservationists. We have sweet t-shirts. You can donate to us. We are fundraising for crash-proof crates for um, the dogs, GPS collars. You can join our Patreon. All of those links are just over at canineconservationists.org, letter K, number nine. Um, you can follow us on the social medias. Um, my most active Instagram is actually Collies Without Borders, but Canine Conservationists has an Instagram as well. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear any questions you've got about a day in the life. And if you're a conservation detection dog handler who has worked a project that sounds really different from the broad outline of any of these that I outlined today, I would also love to hear that. So thank you for listening and we'll be back soon. Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them nom nom now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows nom nom now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canineconservationists1 and use the offer code canineconservationists, all one word, to get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. So again, that is zen.ai slash canineconservationists1 and use the offer code canineconservationists at checkout. You'll get 50% off. And of course, Nom Nom comes with a money, money back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom.